Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today I'm speaking with Sadali Malaku about her new book, You Don't Look Like a Lawyer, Black Women and Systemic Gendered Racism. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about you and how the book came about? Um, Yeah, sure. Uh, So I am presently doing a postdoctoral research fellowship at the Graduate Center with City University of New York. Um, And the postdoc is sponsored by the Institute for Research on the African Diaspora in the Americas and the Caribbean. Um, I chose to do a study on law firms because of my personal experiences working in firms as a corporate paralegal. Initially, I intended on going to law school, but changed my mind after about six months at a large firm. Uh, I, I, I came to realize that I didn't like the lifestyle, um, and I also didn't see any Black women partners um, or a, a Black female associates. So what I did while working as a paralegal is just um, decide to pursue a PhD in sociology while still working there full time. Um, and in trying to figure out what to study, I just remember clearly being encouraged by a very dear friend who's since passed to turn towards examining law firms, um, since I always had so much to say about my everyday experiences there and the experiences of other people. So like me being in those in that space and witnessing things um, and trying to understand what that meant, all while doing the PhD and, and trying to marry these two different parts of my life. Um, and so that's how I ended up turning to firms. And really, when, when we look at diversity in top firms, which represents the population in my study, we do really find that Black women are significantly underrepresented in the associate ranks, but are, all, but are barely visible in partnership positions. So that's how the book came about. And in doing the research, um, I completed the dissertation and um, had uh, the fortunate um, encounter with one of my mentors um, who encouraged me to turn it into a book and to try to write it in a way that would be accessible to a larger audience, given that the subject matter um, definitely would apply in various uh, workplace settings. So that was one of the biggest reasons to try to give access to more people to be able to read the experiences um, and learn about the experiences of Black women in the workplace. Can you set the stage for us and briefly explain your methodology and who you recruited for your study? So I I conducted anonymous, in-depth, semi-structured interviews with Black female lawyers, and they were coming out of um, the top 25 elite corporate law firms. Um, Questions really did focus on issues concerning uh, recruitment, professional development, and inclusivity, as well as obstacles to advancement. I really wanted to learn how race and gender impact the career trajectories of Black women. So the interviews provided really crucial information about how the participants believe that their success and failures are affected by race and gender. The top 25 firms were determined based on various ranking systems, including U.S. News and World Report, AM Law Journal, um, AM Law 100, Vault, and the American uh, Lawyer Diversity Scorecard. The target population 
of the potential participants was actually analyzed using data available on NALP, which is the National Association of Law Placement Directory of Legal Employers. I used that website in order to access the information. And essentially, NALP, um, the NALP directory collects employment data annually from national law firms and government offices. So of the 25 target law firms in this study, based on the location um, indicated, which is a, you know, a northeastern city in the U.S., 22 firms provided NALP with data on their law firm, uh, on their lawyer demographics, including the total number of lawyers, which was broken down by the total number of partners, associates, counsel, staff, and then other titles, which are unidentified. So these groups were further categorized by gender and race. So when I was conducting the study, the NALP directory only had 17 Black partners within the top 23 law firms that provided the demographics by race, gender, and position. And so utilize, by utilizing the now data, I was able to gather information on the total number of potential participants for the study. And these potential participants were further identified using firm website photos. So I, you know, calling a firm and asking how many Black associates and partners do you have was not going to work, although I did make the attempts. Um, so instead, I had to try to figure out how could I self-identify women that I perceived as Black on their websites. Um, and in so doing, uh, I created a spreadsheet of all the women in the, in, in the firms that did have websites where I could self-identify as Black or who I perceived to be as Black. And then I did a, um, you know, an official email to each person requesting, um, providing information about the study and requesting their participation. And if they self-identified as Black, then they responded. And, if, and you know, there were folks who didn't self-identify um, as Black and so thanked me for reaching out. Um, but, you know, it, that's how I was able to identify participants for the study. In the intro, you write, the advancement of Black women, undoubtedly one of the most marginalized groups offers up a unique vantage point from which to measure the entrenched obstructions to the social, political, and economic progress of women and people of color in all areas of American life. Can you explain more about the theoretical framework you use and some key concepts for listeners? Yeah, so, you know, the analysis of race and racism in elite corporate law firms is is critical to studying um, uh, Black female lawyers and the challenges that they face. You know, systemic racism, white racial framing, and colorblind racist um, ideology create circumstances that mitigate the salience of race and gender, which then creates a system of oppression that reflects the intersection of multiple forms of discrimination. Uh, I start the book with acknowledging that Black women's experience, that Black women experience a double burden of entrenched race and gender discrimination, which is asserted in Yannick Sengin and Joe Fagan's uh, book, double burden black women and everyday racism. So I draw heavily on critical race scholarship. Um, the first theory that I, I, I go into is Joe Fagan's theory that systemic racism is entrenched in American institutions, which then provides insight on how whites are privileged over subordinated racial groups. And through this, through his concept of um, the white racial frame, which is a dominant uh, white perspective that only sees things from a white point of view, oftentimes ignoring the perspectives and views of people of color, thereby reinforcing white privilege and power, and through that, maintaining racial inequality in white institutional spaces. So this frame essentially operates to perpetuate either consciously or unconsciously 
racialized narratives, stereotypes, and ideologies that posit whites as superior to people um, of color. So I utilize those two frames, um, or systemic racism and white racial frame through Joe Fagan's um, theoretical uh, work. And then I also utilize systemic gendered racism, which comes out of Adia Harvey Wingfield's work. And this is a concept which she argues that the white racial frame rationalizes systemic, uh, that rationalizes systemic discrimination is also gendered. Meaning essentially that there is an inseparable linkage of race and gender leading to differentiated outcomes. So black female lawyers experience racial and gender oppression in ways that are unique to their social identity, using systemic gendered racism as the lead theoretical frame in the book was really important in order to center the experiences of the, of the black women that participated. Um, I also uh, use Eduardo Bonilla Silva's um, theories, particularly that racialized social systems are are in place to confer systemic benefits to whites over non-whites and arguing that a new racism permeates within American social and institutional structures through a colorblind racist ideology. Um, And that's enforced through different frames that work to maintain white privilege and power and perpetuate racial inequality. And he specifically um, discusses four um, frames within that colorblind racist ideology uh, framework. The first is abstract liberalism, which involves using ideas associated with political and economic liberalism in an abstract manner to explain racial uh, matters. So, for example, using um, the use of meritocratic arguments against policies in place to improve racial inequality is one that um, that we see and we actually talk about further in the book. There's the cultural racism frame, which relies on culturally based arguments to explain the standing of racially subordinated groups, um, essentially looking to diagnose the social and economic status of people of color as deriving from the lack of hard work, you know, questionable morals and familial relations, which I talk about in the book as well, as it relates to um, the billable work that Black women do. Then we have minimization of racism, which suggests discrimination is no longer a central factor affecting racially subordinated groups. Um, and their life choices. And this critiques the belief that people of color make things racial when they're not, suggesting that they're hypersensitive to race issues. This is an incredible frame that you that is used to silence the experiences of Black women. Uh, and then finally, the naturalization frame, which allows whites to explain away racial phenomena by suggesting their natural occurrences. So this frame um, nat- naturalizes racial matters in a way that reinforces racist beliefs without necessarily adopting over racist tactics. So examples you would, you would see, as he suggests, is through dating, seg- um, dating segregation, housing segregation, um, in various forms. In the book, I, I also introduce my um, concepts. You know, I advance the concept of the in- invisible labor clause to explain how marginalized groups, which, can, which include Black women, women as a whole, people of color, the poor, LGBTQ plus uh, community members, um, and essentially um, explains how marginalized groups, these particular groups I mentioned, are required to perform added invisible labor in order to navigate their daily existence within social and professional spaces. So this is um, unacknowledged, uncompensated labor to navigate professional um, or social uh, spaces, which tend to be white institutional spaces. 
I also introduced the inclusion tax concept to describe the additional resources spent, such as time, money, mental and emotional energy, just to be allowed in these institutional spaces. So those are um, the various ways that I uh, utilize theoretical frames to discuss the experiences of Black women in the book. As you were talking about how you recruited, we could even see how directly, even on the websites, law firms are white institutionalized spaces. How does this come up for the women in your study in terms of their appearance? So it's really important to consider here how Wendy Leo Moore's work um, in, in her book, Reproducing Racism, does set the tone and stage in terms of how I look at white institutional spaces and um, is really the precursor to my book, examining the experiences of black women in law firms. So she looks at the experiences of lawyers of color in elite law schools and how that experience really does trans- transform and continue to shape the way that they experience law firms. Um, white institutional spaces adhere to Eurocentric beauty standards, which out of hand exclude many women of color and particularly black women. So assessing, for example, what an ideal candidate would need in order to gain entry to an elite firm, all of my participants acknowledge that a standard checklist exists with objective criterion and objective in quotes um, utilized by the firm to gauge the fit of a potential candidate. The language used here is really significant because the concept of fitness, fitting in or being a good fit, for example, are of course determinations based on the subjective narrative of the interviewer. So what we have then is a form of the neutrality or objectivity within a colorblind racist ideology that imposes a white racial frame, which inherently disadvantages people of color in white institutional spaces. So the use of language to exclude subordinated racial groups is reflected in the terminology law firms use um, in their recruiting practices. So fitting in or being a good fit, these are are frequently enough racially coded phrases used to uh, neutralize racist notions of who can occupy white spaces. So my participants describe how the image of a lawyer is shaped by the white racial frame. Therefore, Black women um, who out of hand do not fit that image, uh, you know, being white and male, have to deal with that. So conforming to an image of what already exists takes added uncompensated and unacknowledged labor, thinking about what the invisible labor clause uh, does here, measured out in this um, tax of emotional, mental, and physical energy expended. So for instance, the cost of inclusion for Black women includes the hours at the hair salon or you know, the need to purchase custom tailored clothing to conform to corporate aesthetics, white corporate aesthetics. Adding to this already um, cumbersome load is the emotional and mental burden that they have to um, navigate and expend in order to uh, rationalize these experiences. The legal judgment of attorneys of color, we know, is inextricably tied to their appearance. So, you know, for example, the more ethnic they appear, the less capable they're perceived by their colleagues. And as a result, pressure to conform to dominant Eurocentric aesthetics is really high and demanding, and Black women confront this daily in elite firms, as well as many other corporate and non-corporate settings. It's not unique to just being in a law firm. This this is something that um, 
black women, women of color across various organizations and industries have to deal with the idea that they don't look like a professional because they don't conform to certain um, uh, beliefs and standards that already exist, shaping what um, a professional looks like, uh, which is often, you know, white and male in most settings. Yeah. As sociologists, we talk a lot about outsider status. What effect do these environments have on the Black women working within them? So being one of very few Black people in a white institution has many effects on your ability to gain access to training, you know, professional development, mentor sponsorship relationships, and networking opportunities, as well as other opportunities for uh, development and advancement. All of this is really significant um, when you think about how um, this can hinder one's ability to advance. So, you know, in addition, being an outsider within comes with very real emotional and physical labor required to manage other people's perceptions of you to be included, which again is invisible and uncompensated. So for example, uh, several participants were very expressive about their experience in elite white spaces, confessing to me that it took some uh, adjustment to conform to the expectation of making others comfortable with their difference. So what this seizes upon here is a common theme among Black women and how one of the prominent but little discussed difficulties of being a Black female seeking access to predominantly white space is the challenge of relatability. So being an outsider whose attributes and life experiences are poorly understood and or valued by the white racial frame. Um, and this is often dismissed, diminished, uh, diminished or denigrated in various ways. So the, the inevitable dynamic of fitting in what we you know, previously spoke about, um, it just hark, harks back to the added emotional and mental labor that must be exerted uh, in order to carve out a, a space for, for, for any in, uh, individual who fits into this within the confines of firm culture. Um, this is not only, um, uh, this not only forces subordinated racial groups to sometimes participate in their own subjugation to make the dominant group comfortable with their presence, but also forces them to contend with a set of hurdles, which is suggestive of the fact that, you know, diversity uh, in these organizations, and we talk about this so much, is often more tolerated than embraced. So white lawyers, for example, are not burdened with the task of making others comfortable with their existence. Uh, they are the norm in these institutional spaces, while others are included. They don't have to pay a tax, but instead enjoy the tax being paid by others, uh, which often and always maintains this uh, same status quo. So outsider feelings are prevalent in institutional spaces um, that privilege and value the experiences of whites over subordinated racial groups. So being comfortable in elite white institutions it really would foster one's ability to build relationships with key stakeholders, which would then facilitate professional development and access to advancement. And those who feel and who are outsiders by being the only um, don't get that opportunity. So another key point to make here is how outsider feelings can impact confidence levels. So I had several participants express feelings of self-doubt, which is really born out of one's perception of how other lawyers, staff, and leadership at the firm perceive, you know, one's qualifications. 
And this comes out of white narratives of affirmative action, um, which stem from law school experiences and are detailed, again, by um, what I uh, explain uh, in Wendy Leo Moore's book, Reproducing Racism, White Spaces, Elite Law Schools, and Racial Inequality. Uh, white narratives of affirmative action act to cause self-doubt amongst some Black female lawyers, and it really does diminish their accomplishments and, and achievements by constantly scrutinizing their presence. And these narratives help to make Black female lawyers both hypersensitive, um, hyper-visible, and invisible in white spaces. Similar to Moore's findings with uh, students of color, Black female lawyers are made to feel as though they are inadequate. Uh, as though they do not belong, and they're forced to question their own abilities. This very pervasive white racial frame operates to create self-doubt that can creep up in in um, any moment from law school to, uh, uh, you know, being a practicing attorney. Um, you know, I think it's really important to consider that the difference with lawyers and student, uh, and students of color is that they're perceived as being unqualified. And this is heightened by white narratives of affirmative action, which places this continual scrutiny on racially subordinated groups in white space, right? Um, Self-doubt amongst Black female lawyers is really destructive and often um, self-perpetuating. And and it's often a self-perpetuating byproduct of this white narrative uh, of affirmative action. So I think that's really uh, a key area to think about when we think of Um, what are the impacts of being an outsider within uh, in white institutional spaces? The effects of systemic gendered racism include isolation, exclusion, and ultimately attrition. As you know, we always hear about the quote-unquote pipeline problem. So what did you find regarding these issues with the women you talked to? Um, it's, it's It's so amazing that the pipeline issue constantly comes up. There is no pipeline problem. You know, there, the statistics have shown and continue to show that black women, women of color are graduating out of law schools at higher numbers. They're getting, you know, they're, they're getting into um, summer uh, associate internship positions. The problem is that they're not, that's where the diversity starts and ends. They don't actually end up getting in, getting those offers into um, uh, starting as first year associates because They don't want everyone, you know, and one of my participants just so uh, eloquently describes that, that, that sense right there, that it's not that they want um, all of us, right? They just need one or two of us to make themselves, organizations as a whole, look good about the diversity work that they do, you know, Um, and there's something to be said about that. There are various ways that we see the effects of systemic gendered racism on the experiences of Black women, which highlight the uniqueness of their experience. I was interested in finding out uh, what the perceived differences and similarities are in relation to the experiences of white female lawyers, which speak to race privilege, and Black male lawyers, which speak to gender privilege. And, you know, what I found, um, you know, in, in considering differences with white women specific to this research just related to, you know, the professional and personal networks that white women can tap into for support and guidance, which advantages them. That's a difference. We we see black women being degendered or considered asexual, which sometimes made a few participants have a sense of camaraderie with white male associates and other times feel outright rejected. Um, 
this whole idea of fitting in. So having to explain physical differences in appearance, such as hair, that white women are perceived to be exempt from, the burden of trying to fit in or conform to the existing white racial frame is on Black female lawyers and other associates of color. So they have to work the hardest to maintain the image of a lawyer, but because of the white racial frame that operates on them, they can never reach that goal. I had so many participants say they need to be uber professional at all times so they're not perceived or mistaken um, as not being an attorney, right? As not being the professional. Um, And then there's this feeling like white women are often viewed through the lens of daughter by white male partners, which makes them more sympathetic to white women and readily able to form these organic relationships that really play a significant role in sponsorship and advancement. Uh, Black women have to manage both their blackness and femaleness, and that adds pressure. So white female associates have an advantage over black females because of the similarities they share with white partners, particularly the notion that white female associates remind white male partners of their own daughters or sisters or you know the relationships that they ha- that they have these are specific ways in which being both black and a woman matter so the white racial frameworks to normalize white spaces to advantage white women over black women um, and in terms of the similarities that we can discuss you know there's a similarities with respect to the confidence gap it's important to note here that when we speak of confidence not only are we speaking of the conviction that one's work is adequate um, or abilities sound enough to make the grade, but also essentially that said quality work can and will be received in such a way as to promote one's career development. That is crucial. Uh, Another point is the double standard regarding work-life balance. That's a shared commonality. The double shift that women often have maintaining their public and private lives, professional and home, not having the support of, of in quote, wives or partners, and the firms not acknowledging the invisible labor they do in order to maintain those homes and um, uh, relationships. Men have a support system that the firm does not acknowledge, right? Uh, another area is the sacrifices in terms of relationships and children. So either foregoing ch- uh, marriage or children or waiting until after obtaining partnership in order to pursue those avenues. Men tend not to have to make those decisions um, and are able to do things simultaneously. Uh, so that those were some of the similarities that came out uh, of the study. Now, in terms of the perceived differences with Black men, you know, the responses varied. Some participants felt that there was no difference between their experiences, acknowledging that they suffered the same affronts in different ways. And other participants felt that there were significant differences resulting from gender dynamics within the firm. Um, So uh, here's the difference. Initially, you know, many interviewees acknowledge that once black males are no longer perceived as posing a threat, they tend to excel with respect to how they are treated in comparison to black women, which is also reflected in the fact that there are more black partners than black female partners within these elite law firms. But let me just add here, when I say there's more, I literally mean there's one more, right? It's not like, <laughs> you know, the percentages are atrocious when you think about it. It's, you know, it's like 1.2% of partners are uh, are black men and then 0.64% are black women. It's We're looking at that type of dynamic. So it's a question of, of either one 
or two or none. Um, and that, that is significant when we're looking at this research. So how gender works in favor of black males because the environment is dominated by white male partners. Moreover, you know, many respondents perceived black male associates as having an easier time navigating and relating to different people within the firm because they're men. So, you know, the male status may enable black lawyers, uh, black male lawyers to relate and identify with other male lawyers in the firm, which is generally exhibited in, you know, social interests and interactions that include sports and, and events like that. The black male lawyers perceived as having an easier time navigating and relating to different people um, because they're men was one of the takeaways there. Uh, also, black men, although they share the racial the, the racial category, are still perceived as receiving better treatment and access because of their commonality with white men. So the stigma of gender becomes more salient for black women. Um, you know, black women experience gendered and racialized encounters because they occupy two subordinate positions based on, you know, dominant patriarchal and racial ideologies, which manifest um, and are structurally embedded in elite white in institutions. Um, in terms of similarities, uh, most of the respondents interviewed acknowledged that black male lawyers are also scarce, right? This whole idea um, and stating that sometimes there even there are even fewer black male lawyers than black female lawyers. So when I say that, I mean to say you because there is a larger population of black women graduating from law schools and going into firms, um, you may have a larger cohort of black women coming in. But they but the the thing that is interesting and fascinating about that is that they never actually end up making it to those partnership positions or they do in such very, very low numbers that it's negligible. Um, so the shared experiences focused on not fitting in, you know, this whole idea of who, what a lawyer looks like, what's a good fit, being mistaken for a non-attorney, um, you know, how competence is attached to physical appearance and since Black uh, uh, his people have historically been viewed as intellectually inferior, how that plays out. Um, feeling that they needed to manage their behavior and language in front of white lawyers through code switching. So there was a lot of discussion and talk about how um, in, in this space they did have, uh, they did have to use those types of um, tools and resources to manage uh, um, how they engaged in the firm. Also, coming from similar economic backgrounds, which, necessitate, which necessitates the need to be the financial supporter within their families. That was a commonality. And, and the various issues that stem from race, right? So um, those are some of the things that, uh, that was discussed and I think was really prevalent when trying to see and understand the differences between the experiences of white women and black women and the experiences of black women and black men to show the uniqueness of how black women um, experience white institutional spaces. Also, um, I saw that strewn across the interview responses is the fact that black female lawyers are blamed for their own exclusion and lack of advancement. You know, um, the, these cultural deficiency and minimization of racism arguments are used to suggest that black female lawyers are not interested in advancing and staying in law firms long term, which speaks to this whole idea of, oh, this is why we have such a high attrition rate. It's because black, you know, black female lawyers or black lawyers or associates of lawyers are just not interested. Um, 
you know, this is a rhetorical strategy used by white partners through their white racial framing of blacks as unreliable, incompetent, and uninterested in staying long term, and allows them to exclude black female lawyers from training, you know, mentoring and sponsorship access, which invariably creates this vicious cycle where black female lawyers end up leaving the firms because of this exclusion, which then denies them opportunity to advance. You know, so this notion that this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for black female lawyers, exacerbating high attrition rates is inevitable because on, you know, on their interactions with partners and the ways in which they're stigmatized, you know, and an example of this is, um, you know, there's a quote in the book that recounts an incident where a black partner, while in conversation with associates of color, states that in the monthly reports the partners receive about lawyer utilization, specifically the billable hours logged, which is the um, amount of hours uh, associates are working on particular deals, whether they're um, substantive deals or raw assignments, it's just the hourly logged. Um, associates of this um, black partner was noting that associates of color tend to have the least amount of billable hours across all the different corporate practice groups. Um, And, you know, the black partner also divulges that the firm partners were confused, you know, about the discrepancies in billing ranking. And as a result, made the assumption that compared to other lawyers, lawyers of color were idler and less interested in working hard. You know, that is that is absolutely uh, um, hearkening to this cultural deficiency arguments and narratives that surround black people. So rather than trying to determine the real reasons why associates of color bill less hours than white associates, the firm's stance is to rely on existing cultural deficiency narratives about people of color. This cultural racism frame coming straight out of Bonilla Silver's work, you know, it is used and works to legitimize the continued racial inequality racial inequalities that, you know, uh, black associates encounter. So I think that's, that's a really good, powerful example of what that looks like and how exclusion leads to um, attrition um, and the reasoning behind it and how it's all very much connected. The other interesting thing about billable hours, as you point out in your book, is that these are often seen as quote unquote objective mm-hmm. and that promotes, further promotes the narrative. Exactly. Just as fitting in and the language used around recruitment and and uh, um, inclusion, you know, is used to actually exclude. This is another example of language and, you know, objective objectivity. And we'll see and in the book, you'll see, you know, language like mutually beneficial. (laughs) Also, with respect to relationship building for sponsorship is also used as a means of excluding um, uh, black people and people of color. Mentoring, networking, and other institutional supports can really make or break someone's career. What are the experiences of your participants regarding these issues? So, you know, time and time again, my participants echoed the importance of building relationships with partners, with senior associates, and leadership members of the firm. Uh, These relationships can develop into mentorship relationships, so anyone can be a mentor, someone who is supportive and provides advice and acts as a sounding board, that's a mentor. But more than anything, really, the key component to advancement is having a sponsor. And to advance in the firm, it's critical to develop a sponsor relationship. So this is where things uh, differ. Not everyone can be a sponsor. You uh, You know, a sponsor does everything a mentor does. Plus, you know, they have the social, economic, political, and relational capital within the organization to drive decision-making. 
you know, a sponsor is a partner essentially with a big book of business who can influence other partners to support the candidate that they want to advance, you know, and this relationship can be assigned, you know, um, uh, this relationship cannot be assigned uh, as we've seen with other um, mentor relationships, right? These relationships have to develop organically, right? So even that becomes the uh, the language used to exclude, right? So um, if these relationships must develop organically, it tends to be that this is why it's susceptible to biases, which are then inculcated by white, the white racial frame, making it incredibly difficult for black women to foster organic relationships with white men. They don't have, how do you develop organic relationships with people who don't have um, many examples of what organic relationships with a black person looks like outside of the firm, you know? So these are important things to consider. My, you know, the participants in the study discussed how they were systematically excluded from these mentor and sponsor relationships, which then inevitably led, um, you know, left them uh, um, out of, you know, reach of receiving what I talk about extensively, which is the royal jelly. Um, and the royal jelly is a term defined as the quality training that partners bestow upon associates they believe are worthy. And this comes out of David Wilkins and Mitu Gulati's um, seminal 1996 study, why are there so few black lawyers in corporate law firms? And it's an institutional analysis. And that same study is could be applied today and the very same results would come out. <laughs> you know, so nothing has changed in a lot of ways or very, very um, small, small, negligible progress um, has been seen. You know, so if an associate does not receive this royal jelly, which exposes her to worthwhile assignments, you know, partner and clients, she she won't um, she won't have an opportunity to develop her brand within the firm and become a viable candidate for advancement. You know, so this royal jelly is essential for any lawyer's potential to become successful in the firm. Um, sponsors ensure access to substantive training, training, which includes these are the things that are key here: assignments that help develop um, their craft, networking opportunities uh, with clients, senior associates, and partners. And those opportunities are then leveraged because it leads to exposure and access to more deal work and training opportunities. You know, and it's also an, a great uh, way to show an attorney shine and be and to have them be, be recognized in that space. Um, then you also have access to an informal mentoring and soft skill building infrastructure that helps, you know, uh, it presently helps white associates confidently traverse the legal landscape of the firm. Those relationships built out of sponsors um, give you those essential ingredients that allow you to develop in the firm, but also um, have access to advancement. I think that's really critical. And the majority of the black female attorneys in my study expressed that they've failed to develop these organic relationships with partners, you know? Um, and these are relationships that they have felt comfortable um, and fully supported with respect to professional development and advancement prospects. If you don't have that, then it's very difficult for you to be able to, um, to reach the level of partnership. And out of my study, two black women were partners um, that I uh, included in the book. And since then, both of them are no longer partners. So it speaks to the level of invisible labor and tax that is um, uh, thrust upon them. And they have to maintain in, in such a way that creates obstacles, 
even once you reach those um, uh, coveted positions. So it's not just a matter of getting there. You know, it's everything that ha- that you need to do to maintain that position once you're there, which speaks volumes about what you've already had to do to get there to begin with. It's just it, it just is amplified and at a much different um, uh, level, so to speak. So I think it's really critical that when we talk about mentorship and sponsorship, we understand that it's not an easy thing to, to gain access to. And it's oftentimes is determined by pe- how people feel. Um, uh, and, and they're not going to tell you exactly how they feel, right? So there's various obstacles that stand in the way of Black women developing these relationships, including, you know, the inadequacies of institutional support and, you know, training apparatuses, the narratives of bias and cultural deficiency that dictate access to mentor and sponsors. Um, there's the, you know, the vicious cycle perpetuated by the billable hour model, which we just discussed and the inability of white partners to see themselves or to relate to black women and therefore choose um, the comfort of sameness. You know, Wilkins and Gulati talk about this extensively partners and senior associates gravitate towards those they're comfortable uh, and familiar with, and that tends to be those folks who look like them. These are um, a few of the barriers that stand in the way of Black women forming sponsor relationships with partners, which of course facilitate mentoring, networking, and institutional support. So we need to focus on how how do you you know shift the way that white men, in particular, view Black women to open the door to being able to um, develop those relationships, which are crucial uh, for their access to development and opportunities to advance. As a quick follow-up, in this chapter, you talk about the indirect comments that are made, like, for instance, when one guy tells one of your interviewees, you know, they're talking about a woman and they say, oh, she must be out getting her nails done instead of assuming that she's working. So these subtle things come up uh, in little ways. Yeah, I mean, there are so many examples of women who... um, you know, and this is all women, you know, having to explain the work that they do and how hard that they're, how hard they're working in relation to men, but black women, you know, just being outright excluded, uh, you know, with respect to a lot of the networking, um, access opportunities or pitches, like just being excluded from participating in pitches, which puts you in front of clients right, which builds your ability to develop relationships outside the firm that would then help your book of business, right? It's all connected. You know, if you're not, if they won't even let you into the conference room internally, how are you going to get in front of uh, uh, potential um, clients that would then advance not just you, but the firm as a whole? They're not giving you the opportunity to do that. And there's a reason why. Um, And the problem is that folks are not interested in talking about what that reason is, and having those uncomfortable conversations. You end your book with a summary and takeaways. What would you like our listeners to take away from hearing you today? You know, I think um, I think the experiences of Black female lawyers point directly to the existence of daily subtle uh, injuries or assaults, right? Aggressions that are indicative of race and gender discrimination. And this happens across the board in all institutions. Um, you know, but key points would be to recognize that black women are often pressured to conform to the dominant white normative perspective in order to be successful. So having to 
to fit into the cultural narrative um, or insert themselves in a way that is, is acceptable. Um, you know, black women are often mistaken for non-professionals, right? As a result of stereotypes and prejudices that relegate them to subordinate positions. And this speaks to the white racial framing of what people of color can and cannot do. Um, you know, uh, it also speaks to colorblind racism and why people are able to say, you know, I'm not a racist. I don't see that. Although you, you just did this. And this to me is a racialized injury, um, that I'm experiencing, you know, uh, also black women are forced to expend emotional and mental labor in order to navigate, uh, white institutions and the discourse surrounding their visibility. So, you know, all at once they're hyper visible and invisible, that simultaneity, that, the way in which they are um, erased in those spaces and and their um, presence is heightened, it never works to support their uh, professional development or advancement. It tends to work to, you know, give more work to them with respect to educating whites in those spaces or promoting uh, an illusion of inclusion. That is really key and critical to consider. You know, also... Black women have to engage in careful self-presentation and impression management to avoid stereotypes and prejudices. That leads to a significant level of emotional and cognitive stress that they have to manage and, and constantly deal with. So for women of color and black women particularly, you know, their professional appearance is linked to their perceived ability and centers on conforming to these Eurocentric ideals of beauty that negatively impact their experience. Appearance is so critical and, and appearance in these organizations lead to perceptions, um, which then lead to how folks decide they're going to interact and treat a particular person. Uh, and that's very critical when considering the experiences of black women, but women uh, of color and women in general black men and men of color. So people of color. So marginalized groups in these organizations are dealing with these types of traumas every single day. Um, but, you know, understanding that it's something that is not just kind of washed over or glossed over oftentimes. Um, it needs to be something that we start having real hard, honest conversations about. And all of these factors significantly disadvantage um, marginalized groups and black women specifically when we're comparing them to white counterparts, uh, which creates this concrete, um, obstacles to advancement. And more than anything, I think I'd love people to take away is that these experiences of black women is not unique to law firms. <laughs> you know, uh, black women across various industries and institutions share these experiences, particularly if they are one of few or an only, you know, in white institutional spaces. So, those are some of the takeaways. There's a lot more to, I, I hope people will be able to take out from this book and, and keep the conversation going. Today, I've been talking with Sadali Malaku about her new book, You Don't Look Like a Lawyer, Black Women and Systemic Gendered Racism. So what are you working on now? So I'm currently actually finalizing a journal article which further theorizes my inclusion tax concept. Um, and I'm, what I'm trying to do is, you know, really parcel out what those different forms of the tax look like. So in, for example, the, um, emotional labor component is now two pronged dealing with the management and elicitational, uh, points to that, um, labor and then the cognitive financial and relational labor. So this, this piece I really hope will further clarify, 
um, what the inclusion tax uh, concept actually means and how it plays out in the experiences of marginalized groups and black women in particular. Um, I'm also editing a handbook on workplace diversity and stratification, uh, which will encompass a comprehensive review of theoretical and empirical research from a variety of disciplines, um, as well as emerging themes on workplace diversity and stratification in organizations and institutions in the U.S. Um, The focus will be on engaging various theoretical and practical implications of the impact of diversity on individuals within the institution, the organization, and, you know, the resulting social, cultural, psychological, political, and economic effects on society. So I'm really excited about that project and the collaborations I'm making. Um, But I also hope to begin interviews for a new qualitative book that I'm working on that will focus on white partners and accountability in law firms. Great. We'll look forward to those. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again for being with us today. Thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate the invitation and I hope um, people will definitely take the conversation further. 